Welcome to this special edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. Everyone knows that I endorse the use of hoist beverages as a hydration beverage. Chris Gelnet swears by it now after using it. And with it being summer, I decided to reach out to a subject matter expert and talk about hydration and heat injuries. This might very well be the most important podcast you've ever listened to. My guest for this episode has a PhD in sports medicine, owns his own consulting company, and is the Associate Director of Sports Medicine Research for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So if you would, join me in welcoming Dr. William Adam Peterson. How you doing, sir? Hello, how are you doing? Good. Have you ever had an applause when you joined a podcast before? Um, no, I think this is the first time that I've had a, an applause in a podcast. So I am I'm quite <laughs> honored to be on on this podcast this afternoon or evening or where, you know whatever people are tuning in from. Exactly. I mean, literally, they're around the world, so it could literally be any time zone. There we go. No, it's 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 a uh, it's uh, great to be on the show, and I'm looking forward to to chatting. Awesome. If you would. Go ahead and take a moment and introduce yourself. Yeah, no, so I, I won't add too much content, uh, context. So, um, you know, I, I do have a, a PhD and, and oh, actually I'll back up for just one second. So, you know, my background, I, I have a clinical background. I, I, I am an athletic trainer, so I did my undergraduate work in athletic training. And I have uh, clinical experience in providing um, healthcare services to, to high school athletes, to collegiate athletes, uh, but also um, in mass participation events. So thinking of uh, like Boston Marathon or Marine Corps Marathon or the Falmouth Road Race. Um, so those very large events, there's there's tens of thousands of, of, uh, of athletes participating. Um, you know, from a, from a research perspective and, and, uh, and background, my training is in exercise physiology and specifically in and around thermal and hydration physiology. Uh, so really, Breaking that down a little bit further is most of my work has been in and around the uh, prevention and care of, of heat-related illness, um, but also how we can optimize human health and performance from a hydration perspective. Um, so yeah, that's a that's real a br real brief overview of kind of the work I've done and and, and uh, where I'm coming from. Holy cow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Now. Had I known that I was going to have you on before, or the timing anyway, I could have just waited to start my physical therapy on my torn meniscus till I had you on, since you're an athletic trainer. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could have, I could have uh, done my best, but uh, yeah, no. Uh, too bad, too bad the timing didn't work out better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't all rehab done virtually anyway? I mean, just kidding. <laughs> All right. So you got it. So obviously the, the Marine Corps marathon is uh, only an hour, if that much, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away. Cause it's Northern Virginia, DC area. Mm -hmm. um, but what is the Falmouth road race? I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. The Falmouth road race, um, it takes place in Falmouth, Massachusetts. So for, for those All that right. are unfamiliar where, where Falmouth is, it, it's in Cape Cod. So if you look at a, a map of Cape Cod, it, it, there's kind of an elbow of, of Cape Cod that uh, is closest to Martha's Vineyard. So Falmouth is in that elbow of, of Cape Cod. So it's a, it's a seven mile road race. Um, the road race technically starts in Woods Hole, which is right next to Falmouth. And it's, it's a seven mile road race that goes along the, along the ocean and finishes in, in Falmouth. Um, 
It takes place in, in the middle now, toward the end of August. Um, I think it's the third weekend in August this year. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty competitive race. We have, there's, there's runners that are from all over the world, competitive, uh, professional runners that, that run this race. And then you have an additional, you know, almost, almost 13,000 runners that are, that are, uh, participating every year. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Holy cow. Talk about a traffic jam. Good Lord. Yes, that's uh, absolutely. After, after working the medical tent, you usually just hang out on the beach for about two or three hours. Um, the finish, the finish line is right along the beach. So once, once you're uh, done treating uh, the patients and runners coming into the medical tent, hang out, uh, you know, get some pizza, um, relax the beach for, you know, two or three hours. And then you're still stuck in traffic trying to get back over the two bridges. But, um, you know, at least you can hang out on the beach after you're done working. All right. I'm going to write down a question. Cause I, I'm, uh, I'm going to go, since you do large events like that, I'm going to come back to that later and we'll talk about things with that. That sounds great. Before we get into that though, I've got to put you through the grinder and ask you our icebreaker questions, which some people find are the hardest questions that they answer the entire podcast. So question number one, favorite movie. Oh, favorite movie. Um, you know, if I had to pick one, I mean, there's 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 a number, and I, I was having a conversation with my with my colleague earlier today about movies, and uh, one of the things that came up, and I would say it's probably one of my favorites. I would say probably top five is 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 Happy Gilmore. It's an old one, but you know, you can't. Oh yeah, you classic. Can't, yeah, you can't go wrong with with Happy Gilmore versus Shooter McGavin. I mean, that's that's just the uh, that's just a classic movie right there. Wrong price, Bob. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a classic. I'd probably say oh. that, uh, that. I mean, that's in my top five, and, and based on the conversation earlier today, I, I'll probably I'll, I'll bring that. I was my, my favorite for this episode. I like it. I like it a lot. Now, what I what I have learned uh, doing this podcast over the last almost three years is reading is a lost art. Mm. However, you're an educated man. You've had to read a lot of things. What is your favorite book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I told you they're hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of um, a, a recent book that I've read for for fun. You know, a lot of the reading I do is you know, is journal articles or or whatnot. I, I would say actually, I think one of the the relatively recent books that I've read that's really uh, stuck out to me and, and, uh, I've used to really, um, adapt a lot of my everyday kind of workflow is, is a book called deep work. Um, and I believe the author is, is Cal Newton. And, and, and if, if I'm wrong and if Cal is listening to this, I'm sorry for, for, um, um, messing that up, but no, I, I think that book is, uh, I, I really enjoyed reading that book and, and the, the, the whole context of that book is how can we uh, be more effective in, in our work? And um, he introduces this concept of deep work and, and trying to remove distractions from our everyday work life that may, may not be needed um, and, and are distracting us from of really uh, completing our, our tasks um, in an efficient and timely manner. So um, yeah, I, I think that's probably one of, one of my more recent favorites just because of the takeaways that, you know, that uh, I, I brought, from that or took from that book interesting okay have you applied anything from what you read in there to your everyday work life 
Oh yeah, I mean, I'm, well, I, I see. I, I I try to as much as possible. I think uh, you know, I think there's room for growth as as in anything. But yeah, I mean, um, in in my normal work day, you know, week to week is trying to identify blocks of time where I can I can pretty much block out that time to focus on on things that need mm. to be done, whether they're upcoming deadlines or you know, if there's if there's a, a paper that I'm looking to to write to get into peer review to to publish, you know, blocking that time out, you know. Um, not not responding to emails or or, or calls or, or texts and really focusing my time and effort in in completing those tasks. So, okay, I noticed. Uh, I don't I don't work in an office and I haven't in the last twenty years as a paramedic. But I noticed before that when I did work in an office that having music on, upbeat music helped me keep a better pace of work. Whereas if there was no quiet, it would can just. I mean. If it was all quiet, it just seemed to like everything slowed down. I'd get yeah. tired. It's like, ugh. Yeah, for me, it's it's you know, music is good, especially if I'm if I'm trying to write or really think. Um, I'm 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 the opposite. It has to be like classical music, and there can't be any vocal. Mm. Uh, it has to be just music, otherwise, oh. um, you know, my mind doesn't work work that well, especially if I'm trying to read and comprehend and understand something. So yeah, music music's great, uh, particularly if you're in a, in a coffee shop and put your noise canceling headphones in oh, and, yeah. and, and block out everything else for a few hours. Yeah. I don't recommend ASMR for that. So yeah, no, probably. Yeah. That <laughs> probably would not, uh, I, I know I would not counterproductive. Be, yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Now uh, the question normally is favorite superhero or historical figure, but with your background, I'll even add in, if you don't have one of those, you can go scientist. Mm. Ooh. I, I think so the you have a choice. Thing, yeah. Which, which, you know, which, which person am I going to choose? Um, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, yeah, that is, that is, uh, that's a good one. I, you know, I think <laughs> let's go, let's go with like the, the superhero route. And, you know, from a superhero perspective, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm a Marvel guy, right? So, you know, between DC and Marvel, I'm, I'm going to stick with my, my Marvel, Marvel side of things and, you know, going through the, the whole Avengers series and, and really kind of seeing uh, the evolution of, of that whole timeline. And I'll say, I'll say uh, one of my favorites is, is, is Iron Man, right? You know, he comes across kind of crass and yeah, I mean, he comes across as kind of egotistical, but you know, I think the thing for me is, is really, he, he always has the, uh, you know, and it's really toward the end of the end of the series, right? He, he really sees the, the good in people and, and really takes his skill set. In, in this case, you know, his, his thinking, his ability to think and, and solve problems um, and, and make a really good decision. So, um, you know, I think thinking of that entire series and, and seeing how uh, how the character kind of evolves uh, and toward the end, particularly in in really uh, understanding, um, you know, the value and, and the importance of, of really just people in general. Yeah. And I love his sarcasm, too, at least the character in the movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Standing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They picked the right guy to play that part because he does it fantastic yeah and maybe and maybe that's what uh maybe that's what uh maybe it's the character right maybe maybe it's the 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 individual playing the character and and just that uh you know that combination there that makes makes it uh uh, makes him such a compelling character in the movie series 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. So of all of your time thus far, from the time you started college until now, all of the studies you've been a part of, which study surprised you the most with the results that you got? That might be actually the toughest one yet. Um, you know, I think one of the ones that really stands out to me, um, and, it, and not necessarily, and I wouldn't say necessarily that the results surprised me. It's, it's. I think the the importance of the results, and I think what um, can be done, and the take home from the results. So, in my current role, um, we had just published a study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, um, and what we did was we went back to our existing data set and looking at the mental health screening tool that that we that we utilize um, for our, our team USA athletes, and it, it's a it's a toolkit that the International Olympic Committee um, developed in, in 2020 and rolled out, um, and we have implemented that into our sports medicine program and use it as a screening tool for our athletes ahead of the Olympic and Paralympic Games. So thinking of the athletes that. Um, we're competing in Tokyo and Beijing for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Um, they completed this this toolkit, and the the way the the tool was initially set to be rolled out was a three step process where athletes would complete a an initial screening questionnaire, and if there was a positive screen or if, if the score in that questionnaire exceeded the set threshold in that validated questionnaire, the athletes would then be requested to to complete the next step, step two, which is a, six additional validated questionnaires. Um, and, and if the scores exceeded the set threshold on, on there, then there's a recommendation to be referred to one of our, our psychological services providers um, for a follow-up, just to make sure that there was no issues. And, and if there were, making sure that the athletes um, received uh, um, immediate support and, and proper support to, 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 um, to help them as, as uh, they're getting ready to, to go to Tokyo and Beijing and, and whatnot. Um, I think the cool thing in, in uh, at the foresight of our, our senior director for psychological services, um, being a new new tool, a new toolkit, we decided um, as, as a department and organization, well, our athletes should complete both steps one and steps two because there was no evidence to say that step one predicted outcomes in step two. And step two is that really that key factor that indicated whether or not the athlete should be referred um, to a mental health provider or, or not. So our athletes completed both steps one and steps two. And then that allowed us on the research side to go back and analyze that data to see, hey, how well did step one predict step two? And for us, we, we were looking at, um, it's called false negative rates. So false negative rates in, mm -hmm. in this context were would be, well, an athlete would not exceed that threshold in step one. So in, in the way that the tool would be meant to be rolled out, they would not move on to step two. So. There, there was no flag on step one, but they would have had a positive screen or a flag or exceeding that scoring threshold on step two. Um, so mm. that is of a concern for us because if we were looking to use the toolkit the way that it was intended, um, we could be potentially missing some individuals there. So false negative rates are important. And it, and false negative rates are, are, are percentage. The lower the percentage, the better, uh, meaning that we're doing a better job of not missing anyone or potentially missing one. The higher the percentage, um, the potentially the um, the higher likelihood of missing someone that may need to um, be referred and, and followed up with. Um, so you know we found false negative rates between almost five percent and sixty six percent 
Um, so a huge range of, of rates. And, and we were able to identify some of the questionnaires in step two that may not be um, uh, the, the best tools necessarily for, for elite athletes. Um, but more importantly, I think the big take home for us and, and, and really what we um, put into the paper was, well, hey, knowing that the range of false negative rates and knowing how serious some of these things are um, within the questionnaires as far as what they're getting at, you know, we, we made the recommendation, you know, athletes should complete steps one and step two regardless. And then that, that should be really factored into that decision in the referral process. That way, uh, clinicians and providers are, are minimizing the chances of potentially missing someone that, that may need some support. So, you know, I think um, for me that that has, I mean, yes, it's most recent. It was just published last week um, and it, it is open access and freely available to download from the British Journal of Sports Medicine web, website. Um, but I think that has the biggest impact, knowing how important mental health is. Um, you know, at least from a sports medicine perspective, we have the physical health, like the musculoskeletal injuries, the illnesses, but the psychological health is just as important if we're looking at health and wellness and, and also performance. And so, you know, having, having some results such as this and, and, and the takeaways that we, we, um, are, are mentioning within the paper and the conclusions, um, is really important. I think it's going to have a tremendous impact, not only within elite sport, but sports at all levels that, that, um, that they can utilize to really, optimize the health and wellness of, of athletes participating in sport. Okay. I, I actually did see and started reading through that, but I did what I, so since you brought it up, I'm going to ask was, so they created this thing in 2020, but was there an event that triggered the need for this and what are they trying to prevent? Is this a performance screening or is this a, and I mean, mental health performing, or are we talking mental health as we know it from a medical standpoint where, you know, we're talking depression, anxiety, whatever. Yeah. I would say the latter looking at the, the clinical, the clinical events that, that can occur and mitigating that. And really the toolkit was really born um, out of, uh, a consensus statement that the IOC published in and around this topic, knowing that mental health has been a concern and, and, you know, um, you know, in, in, in very, uh, um, you know, with, with some of, some of the athletes around the world um, using their voice and vocalizing the concerns and struggles that they've had, um, you know, I think it's really brought this topic front and center um, and, you know, big organizations such as the IOC are, are, are like, Hey, we, we should go back in and develop some recommendations and best practices to, to once, you know, screen things and, and making sure that, um, that teams and organizations are well positioned to, to care for individuals that may have some of these concerns. So, you know, I think it's an ongoing thing. I don't necessarily think it was, it was a single event that really led to this development. It was, it was a byproduct of the consensus statement that was developed um, as far as, Hey, we have this consensus statement. Here's some recommendations that, um, sport programs can then utilize to, to have, to build an effective, uh, mental health or psychological services program. Um, but we're also going to, pr um, produce a, a toolkit to assist you. It's like, here's a, here's a good screening uh, tool that can be used in addition. So I think they were kind of, um, um, you know, the, the, the SMAT, the, the screening tool was born out of the consensus statement. Okay. Now, is there any plan to give them the, so is there a baseline though? Like when they first come to Colorado Springs, do they get that? So you have a baseline and then later you give it to them again 
down the road and be able to measure the differences? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think that that the answer to that is really large unknown. Seeing as this toolkit is is relatively new, um, right. we don't really know how often or how frequent that should be uh, given to athletes to complete. Um, you know, for us, you know, we 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 give it to the athletes um, at going into a, a games period uh, when they in, when they fall under one under our care. Um, there are some sport organizations that are doing it more frequently. Um, and there's other time points that we will, we will have athletes come in that will deploy that tool as well. Um, but there really aren't any recommendations to suggest like it should be done in, in X, Y, Z timeframe or frequency. Um, however, with that, um, comment and really the lack, the lack of literature in around there, um, we're collaborating with, um, one of the IOC research centers in South Africa, um, on a project to, to explore that, um, where we're hoping to get this project off, off the ground here in, in January. And we're hoping to uh, recruit a very large sample of athletes from around the world um, mm. to complete this tool. Um, and I, the plan is to, to deliver this tool every four to six weeks and, and do it for 12 months. Um, and you know, across that period of time, we'll be able to see that indi indi individual variability across time. Um, we'll know what sports they're in, so we can kind of track what their season looks like going into you know across the year. Um, and, and from that data, we're hoping to one get some reliability metrics of the tool to see how reliable it is um, with repeated measures, but also to start to see some of the variability and, and, and start to sparse out, you know, when would it be best to, to um, have this tool delivered and deployed to athletes to make sure that we are um, doing a good job of, of having um, an informed timeline for this episodic screening. Right. I mean, you do it long enough, you'll, you'll figure out where, where in the timeline they start to show, you know, where there may be an issue. So yeah, very yeah. interesting. Okay. Now, um, the first thing I wanted to talk about, cause I, when I first reached out to you, I was reading some different studies and stuff. Um, you seem to have done a bunch of stuff with heat related illnesses. And injuries. Um, specifically, I was reading one where you were looking at ice baths versus other forms of reducing core temperatures and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I found it interesting because uh, when I was in the Marines at Quantico, we had a Marine who had a heat injury. And Literally, I drove this Chevy um, Blazer, the compact size one, with a corpsman and this Marine in the back with the tailgate down, and I was getting it down the road. It's completely <laughs> unsafe, but got them to the clinic. They threw them in an ice bath, and then they you know, brought his core temperature down, shipped them off. And a couple of years later, I heard people saying, oh, that's the worst thing in the world. So I thought it was very interesting that, oh, look here, it's it's later in the 2000s and they're saying the ice bath is the best thing. So can you can you walk me through that and why that's the case? Yeah, no, that's a great, great uh, uh, comment. And oftentimes that the the oh, ice baths are terrible. That's you know, going to put someone into shock or. Yes, exactly. arrest or. Yeah or they're going to warm up because they're going to start shivering. Um, th those are common misconceptions um, that are, that are still used um, in, in discussions. 
um, you know, there's a good paper uh, that we had a paper that we published in, in, in um, 2021. So in the Journal of Athletic Training in 2021, it was a consensus statement or a series of consensus statements. And this one is led by Dr. Kevin Miller, who's now at Texas State University. And the whole purpose of that consensus statement, and it was titled, um, um, oh, it was a roundtable on preseason heat safety in high school athletics and in high school athletes, but it was really in and around the pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke. And the purpose of that consensus statement was to highlight what are the common myths and misconceptions in and around management of care of, of, of exertional heat stroke, and what is the evidence to refute those myths um, there. And, and, and that was one of the myths that was brought up was, was you know, an ice bath or cold water immersion is, is not a uh, you know, not an appropriate um, cooling modality. Um, so, you know, for, for those listening in, you know, feel free to tune into that. Uh, the Journal of Athletic Training, the, you know, that those articles are, are freely open and accessible to the, to the public. And it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, resource to have. But to answer your question, uh, I'll back up a little bit and provide a little bit of oversight from um, exertional heat stroke perspectives. I think that kind of ties into my, my answer and response. Okay. So with an exertional heat stroke, um, well, I'll back up one step even further, just to kind of differentiate when I say heat stroke, right? So when we're thinking of heat stroke, we have two different types of heat stroke. We have classic heat stroke, and this is what you would normally see in an in elderly individual or an infant, right? So I'm thinking of an infant that's left in the car or an elderly person that may be at home, no air conditioner, and, and there's a heat wave, right? So that's classic heat stroke, and really the, the environmental heat is overwhelming the body's thermoregulatory capacity. So the, the ability yep. for the body to, 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 to manage that, that thermal load. Well, you know, over, you know, if that, if that load is, is, is high enough or long enough, well, they can have a heat stroke, right? Their thermoregulatory system just fails. So that's, that's classic heat stroke. With exertional heat stroke, and with the word exertion, that is caused by physical exertion, right? So th these are individuals, whether it be athletes, whether it be soldiers, whether it be laborers, that are physically exerting themselves to the point of having a heat stroke, right? And, you know, you're thinking, well, how, how does that happen, right? Well, as we're exercising or if we're out um, uh, on a mission in, say, in the military, in the, in the military context, or say we're out um, in, in a road construction setting or, you know, roofing or, or whatnot. If we're yeah. exercising, doing activity, we're needing energy to do that work, right? We need energy from our bodies to do that work to, to withstand that, that period of time. Well, from an energy perspective, our bodies utilize glucose and we break down glucose for energy to then do that physical work. Unfortunately, as we break down the energy within our bodies to do physical work, our bodies are terrible at using that energy fully for work. So we probably only use maybe around 15, 20%-ish of energy to do work. The rest of that energy that's being broken down within our bodies is given off in the form of heat. Oh, wow. So if we are out exercising, um, we're, we're producing body heat that we need to get rid of. And, and if the intensity of the extra, if the intensity of the exercise is higher, more heat's being produced. And if our bodies can't keep up with losing that body heat in the way that we're in at the rate at which we're gaining it, well, body temperature is going to keep on going up and, and it could get to the point where uh, an exertional heat stroke may occur. So all that to say, if we're thinking of an exertional heat stroke perspective, since it's, you know, physical exertion related, um, you know, we, we need to cool the body temperature. We need to cool the body down and we need to cool it down quickly. You know, our bodies, we can only withstand a very high body temperature for a very limited period of time 
before we start to have proteins denature in our bodies, before we start to have tissues um, break down, before we start to have organs shut down, before we, did, you know, before we, we start to have the bacteria that's in our intestines, which when it's in our intestines is good, but when it leaks out of the intestines into our circulation, that's bad. So you know, to, to, to help minimize those risks, we need to cool the body down as, as fast as possible. So then you're asked, well, how do we cool the body down as quickly as possible? Well, water is an amazing convective source of heat transfer. And when I say convective, I'm thinking, you know, I'm really meaning and thinking back to, you know, physics, right? When I was, took, you know, when I took physics, convection is the transfer of heat via the movement of air and or water across the skin surface, right? So if I have right. air on a windy day, if I have air going over mm. my skin surface, that air is going to be removing heat my skin and that's and why fans with, feel so good exactly exactly and same with same with water um however the benefit of water is it's it's about 26 times greater uh, the, the power of the, the convective properties of water about 26 times greater than air so it's like oh cool well if if i can put the body in water particularly cold water or ice water now i have a huge thermal gradient between my skin and the water and if I'm circling that water and, and really maximizing convection, I can rapidly change body temperature because of that, that, that movement in the, in the convective properties. So if we're thinking about, you know, treatment of heat stroke and the goal of, of treatment is to lower body temperature down to about 102 degrees Fahrenheit within 30 minutes of a collapse, let's just use the, the, the modality that has the fastest and highest cooling rate, which is, which is immersing someone's body in, in, in cold water. Now, going back to the myths and misconceptions, well, what if it puts in, into shock and, and, and this, you know, this and that? Um, I mean, no, I guess there's, there's always a risk, right? There's never, there's never an, a non-risk. Um, I know in, in my professional career, I've treated over 70 patients with exertional heat stroke. My friends and colleagues, if we combine all of the, the exertional heat stroke patients that we have treated in our collective careers, we're probably, we're probably nearing almost, almost 1,000 patients. Um, and there's also wow. there's also really good literature in in scientific and medical journals that, that are highlighting big case series, whether it be in road races such as the Falmouth Road Race, and we can kind of get back to that if you have a follow up question, or like the military. And you know if if we if we're immersing people into uh, a tub of ice water to cool their body down rapidly, not only are we saving their life from exertional heat stroke, there to my knowledge, there's no known adverse events from putting someone into a tub. And if we cool them down quickly enough, to our knowledge, based on the literature, there's no long-term complications. Um, where if we delay cooling or if we use a sub um, a, a suboptimal cooling modality that delays how quickly we reduce body temperature, that's when we start to see people that may have long-term complications, or I guess more um, more morbidly, you know, we this is when we see people dying from exertion heat stroke is because their their bodies are overwhelmed with that injury. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's that. And I guess going back to the risk component, right. And one of the things, what if they have a cardiac arrest and they're in an ice tub and you can't put an AED on them? Well, take them out of the tub, dry off their chest, put the AED on, shock them. If it's a shock rhythm, do CPR. Once their heart rhythm is restored and you know, they no longer have a cardiac arrest, they still have a heat stroke. So put them back into the tub. Right. So, you know, it, it's really kind of thinking logically through that process, um, of, okay, well, I'm going to treat this emergency there's medical emergency. If another medical emergency occurs during the same time, that's more emergent. I'm going to treat that first and then, and then deal right. with the, the, the condition at hand. So, 
Um, you know, I, I think there's there's ways around that if it were to happen. And it's really more about the preparedness and making sure that, okay, well, we don't know that this, it, there's no record of this occurring. However, there's, you can never rule it out completely. So we should be prepared. So if I'm going to have a cold tub to treat a heat stroke patient in a medical tent in a road race, I should probably have some AEDs around as well, just in case. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's my really long-winded answer to your question. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but it was thorough. So I'm okay with that. But uh, I'm, I'm with you on the side of uh, being a first responder. I've shocked more rhythms into asystole than anything else. So it's very rare have I literally shocked a shockable rhythm mm. where they didn't have a pulse and immediately they got sinus rhythm and, oh, they're back. I mean, that works great in the movies, but not in real life. So, and, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, they're already in shock. So you're, you're stopping the, that shock process because that's what heat stroke is. It's everything you were describing were symptoms of shock. You know, the intestines becoming porous and everything leaking out. So yes. All right. So that is obviously the absolute worst case scenario. You know, somebody had, they get hot and, and they end up in heat stroke, which is a life-threatening situation. So there, I was also looking at some other ones that are more recent and the, there's two of them on my screen right now. So I want to move from heat into hydration because obviously that's, that's a big component of that. And the two I'm looking at are the utility of thirst as a measure of hydration. Mm -hmm. And because there's also um, some old wives tales with that. Uh, but that may actually be a little true. Uh, and racial and sex differences in 24-hour urinary hydration markers, mm -hmm. which I thought was very intriguing, actually. Um, but thirst as a measure. It was always told to me that once you're thirsty, you're already... If you become thirsty, you're behind in your hydration, which is not inaccurate. But what I thought was interesting in the findings was you can drink water and basically satiate your thirst and still be inadequately hydrated. Mm -hmm. So what would be a better... So for someone who doesn't have access to a lab and they can do a urinary analysis every 24 hours, what's a better indicator that they're hydrated? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And that was a fun study. And I, maybe I should have brought that up in, in um, when the, the question you asked before, because I, I really enjoyed doing that study um, in and of itself. Um, you know, I think from a recommendation perspective, and, and I, I do not want to discount thirst. I think thirst is, is, is a great uh, perception that we as humans have that can really kind of help guide us. And, and to be honest, you know, if, if we're, if we're, if our dehydration is severe enough and our thirst sensation is that high, fortunately that sensation overpowers or that perception overpowers everything else in our body. So we will do nothing until we, 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 we quench that thirst, right? So we are going to seek out water to, to quench that thirst as a protective mechanism. So, you know, I think thirst is a really great, uh, perception or sensation that we have to, to, uh, to, um, at least I, I, I'll, I'll use the word alarm, alarm us that, Hey, I'm thirsty. I should probably, I should probably find some water. Right. 
and knowing that the more we're dehydrated, that the stronger that sensation and then the more likely we're gonna find that water quickly. Um, you know, I think from a daily recommendation perspective, you know, I, I think there's, there's, there's kind of two frames of thought or two approaches to this. One, we need to be worried about day-to-day -day hydration, right? Mm -hmm. And then yep. as a subset of that, we need to be worried about hydration in and around physical activity. Um, and let's just say a, a, a sport practice, say football practice, right? Um, you know, so those those two things really kind of should be married. And and I think oftentimes, not oftentimes, I would say sometimes those two thought processes really aren't combined together. It's thinking of one versus the other, and and sometimes there's some misalignment there. So I think from a from a recommendation perspective, you know, I think you know we we need to make sure that we are consuming an adequate amount of fluid throughout the day, right? And that could be given, that could be driven by thirst, right? If I'm if I'm in, in my desk and say I don't have a water bottle in front of me and I'm like, oh wow, I'm thirsty. Well, I should probably get up and go get something to drink because I'm I'm probably behind in my fluid for the day. Um, but you may ask, well, what's what's adequate? How much should I be drinking on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, well, that that's kind of mixed. Um, and and um there's two kind of standards. We have the standards here in the United States, so from from the Institute of Medicine. And the recommendations for men are about 3.7 liters per day. And for women, it's about 2.9 liters per day. Now, that is all fluid intake. So that is also the water that's included in, in foods, right? So, you know, if I'm eating an apple, right, that has a pretty high water content. So those volumes are also inclusive of the water we're consuming in our foods that we're eating on a daily basis as well. And, and I guess you could probably can, you can consider that, if I remember correctly, that's factoring in about 20% of water is coming from food. I could be off a little bit, okay. but about 20% of water uh, that we're consuming is, is coming from the food we're eating as, as well. So there's the Institute of Medicine um, values, so 2.9 or 3.7, um, but there's also European standards. So the European Food Safety Authority has, has guidelines, and those guidelines are two liters per day for women and two and a half liters per day for men. Now that's solely fluid intake, um, so not accounting for those that are that are in foods as well. Um, I personally, I, I like using the European standards a little bit better because it's easier to control, particularly from a research perspective. If I if I know that you know, say women should be drinking two liters a day and men should be drinking two and a half liters a day, and if I want to conduct a really well designed study, well, I'm going to go out and buy some bottled water and say, you know, hey, you're going to drink these four bottles for the rest, of the, you know, throughout the entire rest of the day, or you're going to drink these six bottles, right? Um, that way, it's easy. It's easy math, right? Um, so I, I like using that just because I think there's more control in and around just the fluid intake in and of itself. So that's how we should really be approaching just day to day, right? Day to day, I should be meeting adequate intake recommendations. Um, and you know, how to do that? Well, you know, being strategic, having a plan that could be, you know, if you're, if you're out doing work, you know, if you're a construction worker or say you're even working indoors in, a, in, an, in an office, right? having access to fluids and water, right? Having a water bottle next to your desk or making sure you have access to fluids out in the, in the job site. You know, having access and, and the visibility, you're more inclined to wanting to, wanting to consume fluid because it's right there and available to you. Now, the other frame of thought in and around activity, and let's just use sport because it's, it's, it's easy, right? So say the football player, they're going to go for football practice. And let's just say practice is two hours. Well, if they're consuming fluid and meeting those recommendations throughout the day, well, they're going to start practice probably normally hydrated, um, okay. which is great. They're going to go and exercise. They're going to sweat, right? They're going to lose body water because of the sweating response to, to help regulate body temperature. Um, um, you know, ideally 
fluid should be readily available during that practice. So people are probably going to consume fluids. Um, for people who have very high sweat rates or if it's hot and humid outside, or you think of your big lineman who is a high body mass, um, they may not be able to consume fluids at a rate at which they're losing it. Um, so there may be a deficit by the end of practice. Well, knowing what that deficit is, and then knowing what that deficit is and adding it to the remaining amount of fluid you need to drink for the rest of the day. Um, and, and having that mentality um, is going to really kind of help optimize the individual from, from being normally hydrated day in, day out. Now, you may ask, well, how do I know if I'm dehydrated when I wake up? Like, I don't have access to a lab. I can't, you know, pee into a cup and, and look at the concentration. Um, there's a, a couple of things that you can do, right? You can, you can get up every morning and you can weigh yourself. Um, you go in, go to the bathroom, take your clothes off, get, get, get naked, weigh yourself. And, you know, keeping a, keeping a track record day in, day out, um, there's going to be some variability. And those acute changes in body weight are really driven by water losses. Um, whereas over time, you know, then we're going to see some weight loss or weight gain depending on other dietary behaviors or exercise behaviors therein. But from day to day, any variability is really based on water balance, based on how the body operates. So, you know, if, if I'm going to go in, I'm going to weigh myself every morning, I can see what that difference is day in, day out. And if that difference is say greater than one percent of you know the day before, hey, I may be I may be in a in a, in a larger deficit than the day before, um, so I should probably consume a little bit more fluid today. And and when I say one percent, that's really kind of what is well acknowledged as that normal day to day variation. Every day, our body water should be fluctuating plus or minus one percent for a number of factors. When it exceeds that one percent threshold, that's when we're starting to be like okay, I'm probably veering way out more, uh, way outside of that threshold more than others. So, you know, a first morning body weight can be good. A first morning thirst, right? If, if I'm going to wake up and I'm thirsty after, you know, sleeping for six, seven, eight, nine hours, I probably did not do a good enough job the day before of, of being hydrated. And, and that sleep period is a good time to kind of fast yourself from water. Um, and waking up thirsty, you know, I'm, I'm probably, I may need to consume more, more fluid today. And a third marker that can be used is that first morning urine void. So I'm going to get up, I'm going to go to the bathroom, I'm going to weigh myself, I'm going to, I'm going to urinate. I can look at the color of that urine. And, and the darker the color of that urine, the more concentrated it is, meaning the body is wanting to retain more water in our body. So those three metrics are, are, are pretty good tools to use. Um, and in, in 2003, um, there was a paper published by Dr. Sam Chevrant and Dr. Mike Saka and introduced this, this diagram and this model of taking each of those metrics and, and creating a Venn diagram where, okay, if, if my thirst is high, um, there may be a chance I may be dehydrated or I may need to consume more fluid. But if, if my body weight is outside 1% and I'm thirsty, okay, there may be a greater likelihood I may be dehydrated. But if all those three are formed together where, okay, I have dark colored urine, I'm thirsty, and my body weight is outside 1% of normal, is pretty likely I'm dehydrated and I need to address that. So those are some simple things that people can do um, quite easily. Uh, most people have a scale. I mean, some may, may not, but most people do. Um, right. You can easily wake up and say, hey, am I thirsty today or am I not? And I can look at my urine. Um, you know, so those are some good ways to do that. And, and actually, um, myself and some colleagues are working on a paper right now where we, we looked at those three markers in across about, I think, 300, almost 350 days worth within people. Um, I think almost 80 people. It's been a little bit of time since I've seen the, the, the paper um, as we're revising and, and, and everything. Um, 
but we have all those three metrics and we, we did some modeling and, and some higher level statistics and we were able to determine, you know, how much each of those, those metrics kind of weight against each other. Um, I, I won't spoil it now, but we found some inter interesting findings and, and, and um, in that those, those variables, they're not equally weighted. Um, so oh. um, yeah, so we can use those three metrics and, and, and using more than, than a single one or more you know, three versus two um, it's just a potentially better indication for us in, in the lay population that doesn't have access to, you know, um, extensive equipment to say, Hey, am I doing a good job of hydrating myself or not? Now that approach is retrospective, right? If I'm waking up and I'm thirsty, I have dark colored urine and my body mass is, is, is off from normal. I just did a, I did a bad job the day before. So it's really kind of reflecting, did I do a good job the day before? And if I meet all those, met, those, those, those metrics, I probably did not. So today, as my day is starting, I should probably do a better job this time. Okay. Now, would you guys ever recommend for people who have to do multiple day events, mm. would you ever recommend litmus paper to give them a better idea of where they are in the hydration scale? Oh, that's a good question. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, I've, I've never really used um, that technique to, to look at that. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really not sure. I really, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I really can't offer any advice that uh, okay. for the folks listening because I don't have any real background in, in that. Okay, that's fair. And the reason I ask that is, um, like when I sent you the information earlier, there's one woman that I was talking to where she was competing at a match and also assisting. So mm. she performed one day, but then she stayed the next uh, two days to help out. And the whole weekend was hot. Summertime, so it was hot. It was muggy. Like right now it's, well, today it was 96 degrees here with humidity. Tomorrow it's supposed to be 98, feel like 105 with the humidity. Um, but like in her case, she had an incident at a match or where she was assisting and, um, lightheaded, dizzy, the whole, you know, classic signs of, okay, you need to sit down, you need to hydrate, you need to do this. Um, and her and I were talking, so I recommended some things, but for, because she then started to feel it another time after that. So I'm like, all right, you're starting to show signs of you know, being prone to these things. And I don't know if it's, you know, just her hydration situation or electrolyte imbalances or exactly what's coming. I mean, you get dehydrated, then you have electrolyte issues too. But for those people, I'm always curious of things outside the box, like for her, not, not for everybody, the normal people, I don't, I don't see a need for it, but for those specialized individuals, I can see, well, maybe I wonder if lit, obviously I, no, nothing to back it up. But I'm like, I wonder if litmus paper would help her know where she is in the morning to give her a better idea of how much she needs to consume during the day if she didn't do enough yesterday to keep from dropping to that level. Um, and for those people that are prone, 
Is there any type of guidance as, well, you're not on those days, you're not going to be the, the two leader woman. You need to be the three leader woman. You know, is there any type of guidance like that? Yeah. Um, no, that, that's a great question. And I think going back to my, my example before kind of outlining recommendations, I think that's where, I think that's where even we as scientists could do a better job of translating, you know, what, what would be best, best suited for individuals. So to your point, right. You know, maybe day in, day out, if someone's just, uh, you know, um, living a normal life, maybe two liters of fluid throughout the day is enough. But say now they're going in and, and, and assisting with a tournament or competing in a tournament, and now there's an extra there's extra stress in the body, right? The activity and, and heat stress, if it's hot out, the body's going to lose more water because of sweat. Well, they're needing to replay they're needing to replace that sweat loss because the body is going to be pretty standard to that two liters per day. But if I incorporate an additional stress, whether it be exercise, heat, or both, there's an added stress and an added response, right? So we need to account for that additional response. So you're exactly right, right? So say someone is normally two liters a day and they're normally hydrated. They wake up, they're not thirsty. Their body weight stays consistent day in, day out. Um, they're, they have light-colored urine. But then they're going to go on and say, compete in a tournament and say they're going to be outside for eight hours. Well, you know, hopefully they're able to consume fluids throughout the day. It may not be enough, particularly if they're not you know, meeting up with their sweat losses, well, that added stress is going to need to be accounted for. So instead of two liters, hey, I may need to consume an extra liter because I'm already in a deficit after my long day outside of the, in the hot environment. So yeah, there, there, it does, it does take a little bit of time to really kind of fine tune what each person needs. And I think that's the, the other tricky, complex part is each person's different. Like my sweat rate, I, I'm, I'm a pretty heavy sweater. Um, so if okay. I'm gonna go outside and, and exercise for for an hour or more or whatnot, um, I know I'm gonna be pretty dehydrated. I'm going to come home. I'm going to have the, the sweat marks on my face. Um, you know, I'm going to be pretty the white thirsty. t-shirt, even yeah. though it's black. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I know that I need to make sure I, I, I am strategic throughout the rest of that day to, to have additional fluids because I, it was evident how much I lost. Right. So, and but each person's way different and it's really understanding what each person's needs are and and that may that may be some trial and error that may take some time to really refine and know how much fluid do i need um and everything all right so let let's also then now that we've talked about fluid in general let's talk electrolytes have you done much with studying of those electrolytes in fluid loss and heat injury yeah not so much in in the context of Mm -hmm. fluid loss and, and heat injury um you know, I, I did a study. Um, uh, did a study um, when I was in my, my previous role when I was in North Carolina, um, and it, w- it was it was um, funded by by Hoist, um, and we were looking at um, in this case how well Hoist did it at retaining fluids in our body. So how well how well it did it in hydrating us. Um, so we had people come into the lab on two different occasions where one one you know and it was randomized. So they came in one time and they had one experimental condition, which was either hoist or distilled water. And then they came in another time and they had the, had the opposite experimental trial. So they did both. They came in, we gave them a set amount of fluid that they needed to consume over the course of 30 minutes. So we gave them a, um, one liter of fluid. And then for the next four hours, we, we tracked their urine output. Um, and, and the reason we did that was, well, um, if we track urine output, we we know how much body water we know what we know how much water or fluids they consume because we gave them a liter. Um, and if we track urine output, we know how much water is leaving their body because their kidneys are filtering it out. Um, 
And if we see differences there, then we know that one beverage may be better than, than the other. Um, in, in that particular study, we found that hoist was a, did a better job of hydrating someone than just plain distilled water. Um, and it was statistically significant, which makes sense, right? With, with hoist, you know, it has, it has electrolytes, it has other nutrients in there. And we know based in, in, on physiology that it, if I'm consuming fluids or foods that have macronutrients, so calories and, and carbohydrates or protein or, or, or fat, um, that, that density is going to help absorb that fluid um, in, in our intestines better than just plain distilled water. And distilled water, there's nothing in there. Um, and it doesn't really taste all that good at all because there's nothing in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously in that case, yeah, it was more hydrating. And I think our, our, our overall conclusion was, you know, hoist was was 110% better hydrating than just plain distilled water, right? So 10% better in, in, in retaining fluid in our body. Now, there's been other research that's been done in quite a bit looking at different types of beverages. Um, Dr. Ron Mon and Dr. Susan Sheres, who um, they are researchers in the UK, they have published a series of studies looking at various types of beverages, you know, whether it be mm. your, your oral rehydration solutions, such as like a Pedialyte, for example, that meet the, the WHO standards, or like a, like a, a sports drink, or like milk, or coffee, or, or alcohol, or like apple juice. They looked at all these different beverages, and they developed this beverage hydration index, meaning, hey, if, if my retention capacity is above this threshold, then this beverage may be more hydrating than, than others. And when it came out, at the end of the, the the study was yeah those that have more that are more energy dense they're going to be better hydrating because that, that density as it's going through the stomach and the intestines is going to help the absorption of water into the body um so from a fluid perspective you know that that is good um there um and obviously you know when i say macronutrients i'm also referring to also the electrolytes the sodium the chloride and, and all that stuff too okay why distilled water just because there was nothing in it yeah, yeah, we wanted to really compare, you know, what what's a what's a what's a fluid that has nothing in there that we can't that we can really control for. So distilled water was great because we know there's nothing, there's no minerals in there, there's nothing. So we can really tease out the the true effect of this other beverage, and in this case was hoist um, um, there. So that's what was done, and, and it was really mimicking what the previous researchers had done um, with with that controlled trial with distilled water. So from a, from a replicability perspective and uh, a replication perspective and, and being consistent with previous literature, that was one way that we can have control over those, those results um, from a methodologic perspective. So did any of the participants call you guys mad scientists for giving them distilled water? Um, I don't think so. I mean, if, if they did, it, it, they did so when I was in the lab and my students were in the lab. So, um, I'd have my, been like, oh my God, what are you giving me? That's <laughs> terrible. But to my, to my knowledge, I, I don't think so. But I could be wrong. I'll have to talk to my students um, after and, 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 and uh, debrief with them. Right. After they graduate, they're like, yep, I sure was. They weren't going to admit it at the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh man. Yuck. Okay. Interesting. So I, I guess that's the other thing. The other thing I told her too was, um, so the other part of this I wanted to talk to you about was, like for me, I'll drink maybe one in the morning before, you know, before I'm, before I'm going to a tournament or whatever activity I'm doing outside. And if it's all day long, then I'll drink one again at the end just to help get that in. But I'm drinking water other, the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so for her, I said, look, maybe one in the morning, one at noon, 
if you're going to be out all day, because then you at least, you know, that stuff's going to get absorbed quick. And I said, drink water in between all of that. If you're still thirsty at the end of the day, drink another one and then water the rest of the time just to try to help her keep ahead of it. Um, is there any recommendation for electrolyte replenishment or is it just water? For yeah, that's a, that's a great, great comment. Um, or a really great question, actually. Um, you know, I think from from my perspective, yeah. At first, I'll just say, you know, first water. Like having the water is going to be helpful. Um, right. When we're thinking about electrolyte replacement in, in and around exercise, and whether it be you know a hoist or a, 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 another sports drink, for example, um, you know, when because people always ask me that question. When, well, when should I choose to drink a sports drink over just plain water? And my recommendation typically is well. You know, if we're doing intense exercise in, in hot environments or it's prolonged, so prolonged meaning like 75 minutes or greater, you know, it, it may be helpful to incorporate a sports drink into your fluid intake rec um, regimen in addition to water, right? Um, you know, and I think there may be some added benefit there. Um, you know, one, you're, you're consuming water, right? There, there's still water in those sports drinks. You're still consuming Absolutely. water. Um, one, and it probably tastes good, right? It probably, it probably tastes better than just plain water. Um, so I may be more apt to wanting to consume more fluid, which is also good because I'm consuming more water. Right. Um, from an electrolyte <laughs> perspective, yeah, from an electrolyte perspective, you know, I, I have not myself studied this, but based on the literature, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how much of an effect in, in electrolytes in a sports drink really have in fluid replacement during exercise. Um, and, and the reason I say that is if we're looking at like a, a normal sports drink, you know, it's about the concentration of the electrolytes in there is probably six to 8%. So very small concentration of electrolytes in that, in that beverage based on the volume. But if we're comparing mm -hmm. that electrolyte content to the electrolytes in our blood and our plasma, that's going to be much greater. So if we're consuming that and it's going to get into our intestines, um, you know, our bodies are going to, and based on fluid shifts, it's going to be based on osmotic gradients. Um, right. So having having those big differences may not drive any additional fluid um, per se. Now, there is some evidence to say that just the greater concentration of that sports drink, because it has other macronutrients in there, that that um, creates an environment in the intestines that's going to help promote absorptions, right? So we, we know that there's going to be increased absorption. Now, is it is it just electrolytes? Or is it also because there's carbohydrates and sugars in there? Well, it's probably because there's carbohydrates and sugars in there as well that's driving that because it's making that much more concentrated and, 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 and changing that gradient. Um, so I think from a pure electrolyte perspective, you know, I'm not sure how much of a factor that may play into there, but the other the other nutrients that are in that beverage may you know may assist in the absorption um, of that fluid in into the, the intestine. You know, I, but I think from an exercise perspective, I think the other benefit of, of sports drinks. Um, is the fact that it has glucose, it has sugars in there, right? So if I'm outside and I'm exercising and, I, and I'm utilizing energy, well, I should probably replace some of the energy. Otherwise, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to balk at the end of the day or at the end of that, that match or game or whatever. Uh, so that sports drink is going to provide a quick source of sugars and energy that can help replace some of that being, that's being lost. So that's another benefit there. Um, mm. But, you know, I think, you know, day in, day out, I think water is your, your number one go-to. The, 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 the downfall of those sports drinks is because it has sugar in there. And we know that added sugar into our daily diets has a potential to increase the risk for other comorbidities 
um, right. that have lifelong implications. So, you know, my, my first go-to whenever I give recommendations to people is just water, right? Water is going to be, you know, your, your go-to source. If you're outside all day, if it's intense exercise, it's just, if it's hot outside, yeah, feel free to consume some a sports drink or another beverage um, that that uh, and add that to your food and your your strategy because um, it's gonna it's gonna it is going to assist. Um, I wouldn't necessarily drink solely that because your your stomach may not like you at the end of the day if you're drinking a high sugar beverage all day. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Incorporating that in there might be very helpful. Well, and and some of the the newer hydration beverages have much lower sugar content than. Mm like the old school original Gatorade, you know, mm -hmm. which was almost like soda level sugar content. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're a lot better. I like that. But, you know, I've always been of the mind that take your high school football player, okay? He's having heat cramps. He's on the verge of heat exhaustion, okay? Or maybe he's reached it. I've always been a proponent of, as a paramedic, I don't just want to start an IV and give him normal saline. I'd rather give him lactated ringers because he has sweat out other things, not just water or fluid. Mm. You know, there's sodium in there because you see the you see the sodium all over the shirt and everything else. I feel like, you know, there is that point where you can create a bigger problem if there is an electrolyte imbalance and you just add more water to the issue. Um so that's where, you know, so the, the sodium chloride helps, but I still feel like the added ingredients, those macronutrients you're talking about benefit those people at that level, you know, maybe not the normal person, but for them at that point to prevent them, to help prevent them from getting to that, bringing their temperature down, getting them properly hydrated with everything that they need prevents them from going to that final step, which is where we're trying to keep them out of. Mm -hmm. Was there, has there been any, so as far as you know, then there isn't any real study as to the type of electrolyte at this point of sweat, we need to consider these replacements or. Yeah, that's a great question. I, off the top of my head, I am not aware of anything, at least that I've read it, um, that has really explored that. And I think that's a great, a great, you know, topic and, and thought because you know I, I given how individual our fluid needs are and our, our responses and you know our, our the the body regulatory processes that our bodies undergo um you know some of those approaches do need to be individualized and, and to what extent right so i think that's an excellent right. question um but yeah i mean off the top of my head i can't think of anyone that's really fully explored that um now that's not to say that no one has in the past and i'm just not um, remembering that uh, but yeah, I mean, right. that, that was a great thought as far as how do we, how do we optimize the potential to, to replace not only the fluid losses, but, um, electrolyte losses, particularly those electrolyte losses are, 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 you know, quite high. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things, at least here in the United States and, and, and for mo many people that live in, or consume a Westernized diet, you know, I, I think, uh, I think in part that's, uh, that's beneficial because, you know, we. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty well known that we overconsume sodium anyway. Um, so I, I think yeah. that you know, here, you know, those are, that are consuming a Westernized diet, I think there's there's a little bit less of a risk. But those who may have different dietary behaviors um, for for whichever reason, and that sodium intake may not be that high at all, 
you know, that, that, I think that, that kind of goes back to your point. Like there's a lot of individual, um, um, yeah. influence and factors that may, yeah. um, need to drive a specific intervention and strategies to, to, um, to effectively manage that. Now I wanted to, the, the other thing I found interesting when I was reading the racial and sex differences in hydration was that it, it seems like everybody is inadequately hydrated mm-hmm. like on a daily basis. When I read the numbers, I was like, well, I was telling my wife about it. I'm like, wow, the numbers are crazy. Like one, let's see, where was it? 60% of men and 40% of women don't drink enough water. Mm-hmm. Wow. That mm-hmm. is staggering actually. And it looks like, but at the same time, from what I gathered, it looks like in general, men were, inadequately hydrated 50% of the time and women almost 61% or do I have those numbers backwards? Um, no, I, I believe, I believe that's right. Um, but okay. I mean, they, they, they were, they were close enough, but yeah, it was in the, in the 50, 60% range that they were yeah. inadequately hydrated from what my, from what I remember. So clearly we're not doing the two and two and a half liters. Yeah, <laughs> Nobody no. is. Mm. <laughs> There's a few of them out there that are, but I don't know that I've met one. Maybe my wife. She drinks a lot of water. Holy cow. And it's funny because after I read that study, I, I drank four glasses of water. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I am so far behind <laughs> now. But And you guys did that over a week, mm-hmm. correct? So yes. did I and I don't remember. So I'm going to ask like a, a guy did earlier. Um, was there a baseline before the test started? So you knew what their baseline hydration was or. No. So this is a great question. So this, this, the purpose of the large, this was part of a, um, a couple of larger studies that we, we had conducted oh. and, and looking at hydration status as, as one of the outcome measures that we were looking at. So we, we left this um, as, as an observational design. We just wanted to see what people's behaviors were and, and try to minimize any, um, influence that we had as researchers on their behaviors. So there wasn't no ba- there, there wasn't a baseline going into it. If anything, over the course of the week and, and whatnot, we we got a good baseline because we we knew what their what their hydration status was across a full week. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, yeah, we have a good baseline because now we have a week's worth of data on the on these individuals. Okay. Now going back to large athletic events like Marine Corps Marathon. Boston mm-hmm. Marathon. Those things are big. Mm-hmm. Like people travel around the world to run in those two and the New York Marathon. You know, there are certain ones that are the pinnacles of the marathons. Why people do it, I don't know. I ran 12 miles one time and I did it in 72 minutes flat. I swear I would never run that far again ever in my life. I left the, it was a Sunday. I was in Okinawa. So I'm like, I'm going for a run. I took this Navy corpsman with me. I got so bored. I'm like, man, I, I got to finish this run. So I took off. <laughs> Guy told me he's never running with me again, ever. But so when you work these large events like that, what's the number one injury you see the most? Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say it depends. If we're looking <laughs> okay. at, yeah. If we're looking at Falmouth Road Race, I'm going to say the, 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 the medical condition that we treat the most is, is heat stroke. One, because it's in heat the middle stroke. of the body. Yeah. 
one because it's in the middle of middle of August, right? And it could be warm or hot and, and humid in, in Cape Cod. And with a seven mile road race, it's it's short enough for people to be able to run at a higher intensity for that long period of time, but it's also long enough to be able to drive body temperature up high, right? So when you have mm. that like that uh, that uh, thing there, you can have a, a, a much increased risk of, of heat stroke. So thinking of those races or say um, um, the big 10K road race in, in D.C. Um, in the fall, but Beach Beacon road race in Maine is another 10K race. So thinking of that 10K, that six mile to half marathon distance of so six, about 13 miles, that's that distance where, yeah, my intensity can be higher because it's not that long of a race versus a marathon right. where I need to pace myself more, right? Um, so that's where we're more likely to see these heat stroke events. So at Falmouth, for example, yeah, we're going to see more likely than not heat strokes. And, you know, you know I've, I've, I volunteered as part of the medical staff there for, oh, probably since 2011. Um, obviously, um, the, you know, during COVID, there was no, no in-person race. So there are a couple of years off there. But um, that's where most of the heat stroke patients I've treated in my career have been at that particular road race. Um, just because of the nature of the event of, you know, when, it, when it's held, um, you know, the, 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 the intensity, you know, and also because it's hot and humid, once they get past the first like mile, they're running along the ocean for, you know, there's six miles, there's really no shade cover at all. So if it's, if it's bright sun and hot and humid, you know, that's just added environmental stress that they're imposed to. Now that's that one race. Now, if we're looking at say Boston marathon, um, I want to say that depends greatly. I think it depends on the year it depends on the weather it depends on a whole host of factors where you know if it's if it's you know say cold and thunderstorming all day where you know there's a couple of races a couple of years I've, I've volunteered it was downpouring raining for for most of the day if not all day there's a lot of people that came in and they're very very cold um or they came in and they just have blisters or you know or they were cramping mm -hmm. or you know, I think in those marathon races that are much longer, you see a whole uh, host of different potential problems. Some are, are definitely more emergent, right? You, you know, we do have heat strokes at marathon races. You know, Boston Boston has had heat stroke events um, that they'll treat, you know, in the medical tents. Um, but they'll also have, you know, people with hyponatremia. So hyponatremia being they're, they're consuming um, a ton of fluid and their sodium concentration is just very low. Um, yes. You know, so we have the, those potential emer emerging conditions, um, but then there's other things, whether, you know, they could have fallen and, and you know, scraped up their, their hands or their elbows or their knees, or they could, um, yeah, so I, I think marathon races, you see a greater variability of, of people um, coming to the medical tent with, with complaints um, than some of these shorter races where we know going into a Falmouth road race, for example, we know that we're going to be treating 15 to 20 heat strokes today. Um, because we, that's been the, the trend based of, on the weather and based on the weather and based on the, his, the history, you know, the race has been going on for 50 years and they're really well prepared. And, you know, if, if there's any, say if, if I'm going to run a road race and if I'm going to decide that day, I want to have a heat stroke, I'm going to have a heat stroke at Falmouth because I know for sure that I'm going to be treated immediately appropriately and they're going to save my life. Um, there, so. Okay. So you're going to plan it for there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. And I expect, you know, like the marathons, I expect repetitive injuries like blisters and, yeah. and things like that, that, that I get, I was surprised for a seven mile race that the number one injury is heat stroke. That's shocking. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, wow. I, and I would say that's specific to that one road race, but maybe there may be other seven mile road races where there may not be that much of a risk. But, you know, for Falmouth and, and also that's my own personal experiences being there um, at that race. Yeah, that's going to be the number one complaint that comes in. Wow. Now, how how much of that do you think is just people not necessarily being properly prepared for a race like that? Oh, that is a great question. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I can actually answer that. I think it's a, I think it's a whole host of different things, right? Someone could be someone could be out late night uh, late. They could be out late the night before partying because that's really truly the last weekend in in Cape Cod before school starts up mm. again. So that's their week of vacation. They're going to go and party, and then they're going to go run this race. That could be a that could be an issue. They could be sick in the week beforehand, or they could. You know, maybe they had an injury from running and, and they were they were shut down, not being able to train as effectively. Um, so their fitness may be low. Their heat acclimatization status may be low. Um, they can not be maybe they weren't hydrated or maybe they didn't sleep well the night before because they were sleeping in an Airbnb or a hotel or something like that. A whole host of different factors can come into play internally, but then the environment plays a factor into things as well. Um, I think one of the, the the complicating factors with heat stroke, and I think one of the things that fascinates me myself as a scientist in this space, is we know all these risk factors contribute to overall risk, but we really don't have a good understanding as far as knowing that we have all these risk factors that are known, how much weight each of those factors has to overall mm-hmm. risk, and the interactive effects of these these risks. And I think to, as a take home point. There was a case series published a, a long time ago, I believe in 2004, looking at heat um, 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 heat stroke uh, heat stroke fatalities that had occurred in the Israeli Defense Force. So there was a big a big case series, and, and they highlighted six um, six individuals that died from heat stroke. And in the paper, they highlighted um, you know factors that were responsible based on each of the six individuals. Well, the reason they died was because they weren't properly triaged and they weren't properly treated. That's why they died. And, and all six okay. people had, had those pieces, right? Had they been treated appropriately, they would have lived. The other interesting thing was there's other risk factors there that may, predis- may have predisposed them to the heat stroke occurring in the first place. So we know the lack of, the lack of appropriate care killed them. But if we look across all six individuals and all the potential risk factors, right, it was hot out or the intensity or, you know, all the different factors in that, in that table – they were all over the place. Not one person had every single risk factor, nor was oh. one risk factor present in every single individual. So now you have this like perfect storm of, okay, well maybe wow. maybe one person may have been dehydrated and sleep deprived and they went out for a, 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 a training bout and they would have been fine. However, the person next to them had the same risk factors. They may have had the heat stroke. So it's like, okay, well, why, why did this person have a heat stroke and this person didn't, right? So the, the, the complexities in and around constitutes the, the, that is, is really fascinating for me. Um, and it makes it really kind of hard to kind of answer the, those questions. Like how do, we, how do we fully prevent heat stroke from occurring? And, and you know, I, I'm of the thought like we can't, we can't prevent the incident from occurring 100%. We can do things to mitigate risk, but we can't prevent it 100%. What we can do is prevent death, right? And that's yeah. where where is their risk and making sure that we're prepared, whether it be the proper medical personnel that are there and having the proper supplies there to make sure that we can recognize, assess, diagnose, but then also treat at the same time. And, you know, so, you know, we can't prevent it, 
But if we're prepared and we see it, observe it, and diagnose and treat it, we know that we can keep them alive. So um, that's kind of, you know, interesting part to think about. Yeah. And I mean, if you can't come up with a formula to prevent it from happening, then the only thing you can do is go to the end and prevent them from dying. So, yeah. Now I'm optimistic. I think that at some point, you know, I think that we'll, we'll be able to develop a pretty good algorithm. Um, but right now, these in the literature we have, no, not at all. Um, and I think people are, people are working toward that. And actually I'm, I'm working on an, an editorial with a, a friend and colleague of mine to talk about that, that topic. Hey, here's all these risk factors. How do we, how do we approach this? Because ideally it'd be great to prevent this 100%. We know we can't now based on the literature. So what factors maybe we aren't thinking about, right? So um, her and I are working on this right now and we're hoping to get this submitted and, and hopefully published, but it's really more of a, a call to action. Like, hey, here's some other factors that aren't included that maybe are contributing factors and may explain some of these things that we aren't accounting for and really moving things forward and, and developing a more robust model. Just kind of getting other people to think about it? Yeah. To get yeah. Okay. I did my usual, um, broke my rule. You were talking and I had a question and I was like, I'll remember. And I don't remember. <laughs> it's horrible when I do that. I hate that because it was a good question. <laughs> and, it, and it was just carrying the, the topic on because there was something curious about it. But now I don't. For the life of me, I cannot remember. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> well, I'm, ho I'm hopeful that it'll come back to you at some point. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. Now, for for athletes like in Colorado Springs training, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of, I assume that the outdoor sports also train there? Um, it's, it's a variety of sports, and it really depends. I mean, we have some of, some of our sports that, that, are, that are here, right, thinking of um, – you know, boxing, boxing is here, wrestling is here. Those are indoor sports, but we have a whole host right. of other athletes that come in and train. Um, you know, we have, we have triathlon that's and cycling that are here. Um, and depending if, you know, if they're in the velodrome, um, if they're track cyclists or if they're outdoors or if they're a para, uh, a para athlete or, or whatnot, there may be some outdoor components to their discipline. Um, but yeah, it's a real, it's a variety. Um, and it just depends, um, on sports and, 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 um, you know, where they want to train and, and if they're coming in for a camper or not. So yeah, it's a variety. Okay. Okay. So for those that m might be training part of their time outside, mm. is there, are there guidelines there for increasing, um, fluid intake or is that just a personal thing where they're, they're educated on hydration and, and they take care of that themselves? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think more generally, and you know, I can't speak to any of our, our specific sports and, and what those strategies are, because I think it varies. Um, and, okay. you know, um, and given my role, you know, I, I don't uh, don't have um, direct knowledge of, of how our, our performance staff are, are, are managing that. Um, but I know obviously that is that is a strategy that is focused on. I just don't know what how they approach that strategy. Um, but I think in, in general, um, you know, I, I think it's really more of a you know, education piece and, 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 and a learn piece as well. Um, you know, if they're outdoors, um, you know, knowing, knowing what the fluid needs are. And I think, I think, um, oftentimes what I recommend people doing is if they want to know, Hey, how much fluid am I losing? And if I'm outside, 
you know, exercising. And let's just say that it's in the summertime and, you know, say it's hot. Um, I think here today was like 90 degrees. It's been, it's been the nineties past few days here. Well, if I want to know what my sweat rate is and if I'm regularly exercising outside, well, you know, before I go and exercise, I'm going to my bathroom, get on my scale, you know, get, um, you know, take my clothes off, get on the scale, taking the clothes off is easy because you, you don't have to account for the weight of the clothes. Get my body weight beforehand. I'm going to go and exercise. You know, ideally, if I'm going to exercise for an hour, it's easy to make the rate easier. Um, go and exercise for an hour, come back, get naked again, weigh myself again. If I consume any fluids, making sure I keep track of how the volume of what I'm consuming. And, and taking that pre-weight and that post-weight, there's going to be a difference, right? There, you know, there's going right. to be a deficit. Well, you know, if I'm, if I'm down, say, two liters in an hour, well, my sweat rate is – or I, I'm down two liters in an hour – and that's after accounting for the foods I've consumed. Well, I'm in a two liter deficit. Um, so then I need to go back and say, okay, well, are, are, is there any way that I can integrate additional fluid intake into my workout? Right. Um, and if I can, let, let's try to do that. Like what are some strategic points? And if I'm out on my bike, okay, maybe I need to carry an extra water bottle with me, or maybe I need to make sure that I stop at, 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 um, you know, at this time point at, at the, in the convenience store or, you know, coffee shop or restaurant to refill my water bottle. Um, to make sure that I have enough to get home, right? So being strategic as far as where where can I incorporate more food and take into my into my um, workout to minimize that deficit by the end of end of that that um, training period, or more importantly, if there isn't any time periods to to incorporate additional fluids based on what I'm consuming, and that could be just not nothing available, or maybe I'm consuming a lot of fluid and adding more, I just I won't be able to manage it, you know, gastrointestinally making sure that I'm then consuming that afterwards, right? So those are some really simple strategies that people can take to kind of see where they are. Now, that's going to change over time, right? Particularly in, in someone who's living in an environment that has four seasons, my, my fluid losses during the wintertime are probably going to be much less because I'm going to probably be yeah. sweating less. It's cold outside versus, you know, in the summertime where it may be hot and humid, right? So, you know, doing that periodically across the year, if you're regularly exercising outdoors, you're going to get a really good sense of how your body responds to the environment and, and, and your training. And over time, if you keep track and keep record of that, you're going to have a, you know, an understanding of what your own needs are and you'll be able to then incorporate it into your daily behaviors um, quite readily. So I think that's probably an easy strategy that people can take um, to, to know how much you're losing, how much they need. Um, and, but to really kind of see what their data is as an individual, but then have their own intervention change, change their behavior, change your strategy, which sometimes is hard for people. Oh, sure. All right. So let's, uh, I'm, I want to take that a little bit deeper for a moment. Then let's take that woman. I'm going to throw out a random number cause I don't know how much she weighs and, and we're going to say 150 just for ease of math. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 1% for her is 1.5 pounds. Mm -hmm. So let's say, uh, but at the beginning of the day, she weighs herself 7 a.m. And she weighs 150 pounds. She comes back in the afternoon after being out there all day and she weighs 145 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, how much can we expect that to be weight loss due to the generation of heat, which burns calories, which is going to cause you to lose a little bit of weight? And how much of that is water weight? And then how part two is, how do we then translate that into fluid? Are we doing one pound equals a quarter or one liter? I mean, how are we translating this? 
Yeah, no, that's great. You know, I think to address your, your first question, right, you know, looking acutely, and when I say acutely, we're, at, we're really looking at the day level, whether it be across the entire day or between a, a two-hour practice or, you know, whatever it is. At the day level, that's going to be solely water losses. Now, that's not to say there may not be weight losses from the, the, the energy, the calories that are burned. Um, but I think on such an acute time scale, the day level, that, that contribution is be very, very small. Okay. Um, so primarily most, if not all of that weight loss is from water loss in and of itself. Okay. So that's something very simple to think that, you know, if, if it's acute, the day level, whether it be hours in the day or across the day, that's the water losses there. For the, the, the next question with, you know, how does that translate? That's a great question. So, um, you know, I think in and around a, a practice, and let's just say it go back to a two-hour practice again because it's it's easy. And actually, let's let's provide an, another example. Oh no, let's just the day level is fine. Um, okay. So say they're down five pounds. Well, I want to want to replace that fluid, uh, you know, um, before the next day. Um, right. And the recommendation, you know, is going to be about 150% of your losses. And let's say, well, 150%, why is 150%? That's well above 100% of what I lost. You're going to urinate it out. You're going to urinate some of that out, right? So you're accounting for some yeah. of those urinary losses, particularly on a more sure. short short scale. So thinking of like a football player that has two-day practices, right? I'm going to practice in the morning. I have four or five-hour break and then practice again. Well, that 150% needs to be consuming that in that period of time, knowing that well, wow, that's a shorter period of time. I'm going to probably urinate a lot more. So that 150% is probably a pretty good number, right? Right. Um, so that's kind of where we're looking to go, 150%. Now, how does that translate volume-wise, five pounds? Um, this is this is why I like the metric system. Um, and I don't like using pounds and stuff here in the United States because the metric system okay. is way, way simpler, right? So let's just say five pounds, five pounds. That's why the Europeans use it because it's simpler. Uh, yeah, so let's just say... <laughs> Just, just for the sake of the conversation, I, 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 and I know it's not going to be the correct calculation. Let's just That's say okay. five pounds. Let's just say five pounds is two and a half kilograms. It's not. It's going to be. Okay. It's going to be less than that. But let's just say it's two and a half kilograms. It's easy. Well, okay. One kilogram equals one liter. So okay. If I'm down, if I'm down two and a half kilograms because of water loss, well, hey, I should be consuming. You know, two and a half, two and a half liters gets me back to baseline. But you know, if it's more acute time scale, I should be consuming 150% of that. So that's probably about three and a half ish liters or so, whatever 150% is of, of two and a half. So I should be consuming that much fluid before the next day, before the next event. Um, so yeah, I like using the metric system because it makes more sense. It makes the math way easier. Cause then if you're using pounds, well, I'm gonna use pounds, I should use ounces. And then it, it gets all, you know, I, I, I myself get confused, but, you know, think it, you know, thinking of ounces, if you want, if we want to go that right, uh, one liter is about 32 ounces. So if I'm down, if I'm down, you know, two and a half kilograms or five pounds, that's probably going to be about 75, 80-ish ounces. So then add some more to that. So you're probably looking at 100, 120 ounces, right? So you can do some quick three math quarter, there, but three quarters of yeah, a gallon. So, there you go. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I like, I like using, I like using the metric system when it comes to that because it makes the math easier. <laughs> okay. That, that's fair enough. I, I like to give the Europeans a hard time. So I gotta, <laughs> I, I gotta, you know, say that's why they use it. Cause it's simple. 
But I mean, I figured there had to be a translation there somewhere, somehow, some way, so you can determine that. So that I, I actually like that because being a paramedic, and, but also a firefighter, mm -hmm. you know, I don't like the firefighting aspect of my job, not because of the fire and everything. It's because the gear, I already don't like heat. Heat and I, we literally hate each other. Um, have you, have you ever heard or um, dumb question? Never mind. Have you ever experienced prickly heat? Um, I don't think I've ever, <laughs> you get that quizzical look. I'm going to say no. Yeah, I don't think I've experienced it. I mean, I know what it is. I don't think I've experienced it. I'm not trying to reflect back in my life. I'm like, eh, no, I don't think I've experienced it. But I, I'm aware of what it is, yes. Yeah, I have in a jungle environment. And I was the only guy in my entire platoon that experienced it. And they're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I got a million I got a million needles in my back right now. Da -da 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 -da. I was like, I had no idea what it was. Someone had to tell me what, what I was experiencing. But um, that's why I don't like fire gear, because it just makes me hotter like mm -hmm. literally my body core temperature on average runs between 94 and 95 mm. like I, I i when i injured my knee they kept like this nurse is like trying to take my temperature and she's putting it in my ear and across my forehead down the back of my neck i'm like let me guess it's low and she goes yeah it's not reading right i'm like what'd you get she said 94 i'm like yeah that's right she goes what i'm like that's normal that's why i hate the summer that's why I hate mm. firefighting equipment because my body core temperature is low. So as soon as the temperature gets above 70, I'm already starting to sweat because I'm like, I need it colder. So I go to cold weather training. I'm the guy sleeping out in the snow with the tents and everybody else is like, this sucks. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. But my my point here is that firefighting gear elevates your, temp your body temperature and they have correlated long-term health problems with that in firefighters because their core temperature gets up. But I like this weight thing because that might be something we can also incorporate in our stations. Mm -hmm. Every weigh yourself every morning before you start shift and every night before you go to bed, weigh yourself mm -hmm. and make sure you're hydrating properly. That's something easy we can do. It's very, very simple. Yes, very yeah. simple. Um, and it, it, and you're right. I mean, it could be easily implemented into a, into a firehouse. You know, you know, heck, you know, thinking of like a high school football team that has maybe a hundred players. It's it's easy for them to do weight checks before and after practice. Like it's in, for for programs that do it every day. It, it's 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 like clockwork. Um, they have their weight charts and they have all that. So yeah, it's it's something super simple that can be implemented, and it can really be quite impactful from just an overall one knowledge understanding perspective and, and really helping to drive behavior change for, for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, so I, that, I really like that. That is very simple. So, and we, I mean, look, most what is medicine is weight based and it's in kilos. So it's an easy thing. We can all just weigh ourselves, convert it to kilos, do it again in the evening all right, you're down 14 liters, Riddle. Go drink. So <laughs> it'll be something easy. And, and it might help us, you know, identify people that are chronically mm. dehydrated mm -hmm. and maybe be able to help them so, you know, their health will be better long-term as well. Well, I never did remember that question, um, unfortunately. <laughs> I think it was just another subset of what we were talking about mm. but 
to expand on something. I just can't remember what it was, but was there anything that we did talk about that you feel that we didn't clarify well enough or we need to go back and. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the, the, the thing that we're just talking about, like what, what are easy strategies that anyone can use? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the people listening in can take some of that away, right? Yeah, a body weight yeah. before interactivity or before the end of the day or waking up and thinking about, hey, how thirsty I am and what colors my urine. Like, those are really simple strategies that, that can be utilized um to to help you know guide like hey how how good am i doing from a hydration perspective so you know i think that's probably one of the bigger take-home p- p- um, points here is hey there are some pretty simple solutions that we can do that don't need extensive or expensive equipment in a lab that you know we need to pee into a cup or provide a you know blood sample and in and, and all that okay now i'm going to uh i'm going to be following you to see when the litmus paper study comes out <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll uh, I'll look into that. Maybe, maybe what I'll do. Um, I, I just had a uh, I just had a PhD student graduate in May, and and uh, he's taking on a faculty role in Georgia. So I may I may play. Hey, Mitch. Like I think you. Uh, I think I have a study idea that you may be interested in doing. So I'll, I'll bring that up. There to you him go. What he says. Yeah. I like it. Mm. Uh, the other thing was, um, where. Do you remember the name of the study that they did in the UK that put all the beverages on a scale? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know the full title of the study, but beverage That's hydration okay. index is in the title. So if you t- if you type in beverage hydration index, you're most likely oh, okay. run across it. And I mean, you're actually probably you're probably going to run across a couple of studies that use that in the title because there have been some follow up studies that have been done. Um, but okay. that should go back and. And Ron Mon and, and Susan Sharefs are, are um, authors on that initial um, um, paper. Um, so yeah, beverage hydration index that should lead you to uh, the original paper there. Okay, it's like body mass index. <laughs> it's beverage hydration index, <laughs> BHI. I mean, I should have known that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I hope you're okay with me calling you Doctor Adams. Um, Thank you very much for coming on. I think this was extremely informative and I, and I think people will get a lot out of it. Yeah, no, thank you again for, for the invitation. It's been great to, to sit down and, and chat about, uh, you know, uh, some topics that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about and, you know, it's not every yeah. day I get to uh, talk about uh, those, those things. So I'm glad that we were able to uh, do so. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, those listening in are going to be able to, to take some, some nuggets out from this conversation and apply it to their, their, their lives. Absolutely. Well, again, I appreciate it and I wish you the best. Yeah, you as well. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to see how, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely have to tune into to more of your podcast now after this great conversation. So. I love it. Thank you. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>